And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Welcome back to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine. And we do not have a photographer with us today, but that's okay. Uh, our guest is Jason Figgis. He's uh, from Ireland, and he's coming to us from near Dublin. And uh, Jason is a writer, director, filmmaker. I'm going to call you a filmmaker because he right. just completed a, uh, a film about uh, photographer Shirley Baker, which uh, we'll be talking about. And the title of it is uh, The Light Through a Lens. And Jason, I've got to, I have to confess, I'm not, I was not familiar with Shirley Baker's work until we communicated about your film. And I got to thank you for giving me the opportunity to view it so I could learn more about her and the era in which she shot. So thanks. Anyway, so welcome. Well, thank you very much, Bob. It's great to meet you. And yeah, I mean, I've been a fan of your podcast and also your magazine. And that's why I reached out to you and I thought, well, we want to get the film on the road. And I thought you'd be a great place to start. And I knew that you wouldn't know about her because in a way, why would you? I mean, one, it's like a lot of female photographers, um, not only were they kind of kept in the background, but they weren't even credited um, for their work in in newspapers mm -hmm. and publications. So. Uh, the editors might have liked their work, but they but they would just put them in with, with with no credit. But so I figured, you know, making this film, one of the reasons for making it was so that people would see uh, the incredible um, kind of social history that she captured. Um, and, and essentially, that's what she was. She was like a social history uh, photographer. And it was funny you were saying that you, you don't have a photographer on, but I would say to people that. If you think about in filmmaking, it's basically 25 or 24 frames per second. So in a way, it is photography, but it's just speeded up to the point where you can see it as the moving image. But I know when I'm working, for example, I'm going frame by frame and making sure that everything is fine. So I'm essentially working, you know, on a still image, you know, for, for those 25 frames per second. Yeah, so. That's a good point. And you know what? I should have pointed out the fact that you're also the editor of Nikon Owner Magazine. So you got to be a photographer, right? No, I'm, I'm not the editor of Nikon. I'm not the editor of Nikon. Gray Levitt is. But Gray oh, Levitt. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. I completely misread that. No, 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 no. That, that's fine. Gray is a very close associate of mine. <laughs> and we've done a lot of work together. But, um, um, but no, I, I'm not the editor. But so what? I'm a big fan. And it's funny, actually, whenever I talk to Gray, because he's exclusively Nikon, um, I, you know, he goes, Did, was it shot with a, with those photographs taken with a Nikon? And I go, no. And he goes, okay, well, I forgive you. Let's, let's talk anyway. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. They, they still make great cameras. They do, yeah. I don't use them either, but that's okay. It's, it's all good stuff. Yeah, They're I, all I, good, you know? I use Panasonic and Canon. Yeah, I like the, I like the GH five, the Lumix. Mm -hmm. Very good for filmmaking as well. That's uh, what I'm told. So you know, it's funny what what you said about um, you're basically a photographer. You're shooting about 24 frames a second, and I've learned so much 
about composition and lighting by watching films. Yeah. Particularly particularly older black and white films, but but not always sure. the case. I mean, look, when you set up a shot, how long does it take? A long time, right? You get the lighting just right, you get the composition just right, and that's when you start. Is that true? Oh, absolutely, because I mean it's like when when I started being interested in film, even from a very early age, what always struck me was the fact that film is a visual medium. And so I would be looking at how it was framed and how actors entered the shot or they left the shot. Or, and particularly because I've always been a fan, I've always been a fan of classic Hollywood movies. You know, the studio system, which I know wasn't great for actors and they kind of, you know, kept them constrained. But mm-hmm. they made films and they had amazing directors working there, people like Billy Wilder and George Cukor and these, Cecil B. DeMille and all these amazing people who were true artists. So to them, the sound and the look, the feel of everything was so important. I think that's why if you, if you ever see the, um, they, they would have on-set stills photographers going and photographing setups, you mm-hmm. get a really good background into how the amount of detail they put into lighting the shot and shooting the shot. And of course, the cameras then were so big and noisy that a lot of the time they'd have to shoot stuff uh, without sound and then re-record it later in the way that the Italians do and still do at times that even at Cinecita Studios uh, mm. in, in Rome, they would still record without sound and then add uh, everything later because the cameras were so big and cumbersome. I think the Italians got into that habit and kept it going. Plus, you have then the chance to not manipulate but to create whatever kind of aural atmosphere you want. But definitely I agree with you. I mean. The whole idea of them setting up a shot like that, but knowing it's going to be a moving image is like, it's just like um, a a greater um, kind of idea of the still image. But of course, with film, they had to make sure that the lights are going to travel in the right way and if the camera's moving. But certainly with earlier Hollywood movies, they were very static, as you know, because again, the cameras were so huge. So they had to set everything up within the frame. And I know Alfred Hitchcock used to say to his actors, I don't mind what you do so long as it's within the frame. If you mm-hmm. want to try something fine, but within the frame. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, lighting, I think, is everything. And that's why, of course, original cinematographers were called lighting cameramen. Um, that was mm-hmm. their original title because it was all about they got to light it and they got to shoot it and they have to know how to expose. I became friends with Jack Cardiff, who shot... Um, uh, you know, God, one of his most famous films was that Humphrey Bogart, uh, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, oh, God, what's the one on the boat? Oh, amazing film. Oh, um, <laughs> but we blocked each other now. That yes, that's right. I could be, um, in Africa, they were in Africa, the African Queen. The African Queen. African Queen. Oh, yes. <laughs> And actually, a very funny anecdote that I think your listeners would be interested in is that Jack told me that when he met Humphrey Bogart for the first time, he said, Humphrey Bogart came, or Bogey, as they all called him, of course, mm-hmm. came over and he said, hey, Jack, you know, you've got this reputation for being this amazing cinematographer and all your works look so beautiful. It's creamy. So beautiful. And he goes, oh, thank you. Thank you, Bogey. That's wonderful. And he said, but let me tell you, he said, you see the lines on this face? He said, I want to see every single one of them up on the screen. I've earned. (laughs) (laughs) He said they got on like a house on fire from that moment. He realized he was going to be a fun guy to work with. 
Um, but what a beautiful looking film that is. And again, Jack always said that to him, it was the still image, but it just happened to be moving at 24 frames per second. So without even thinking about it, I think that's where I got that from, from talking to Jack Gardov, two-time Oscar winner, you know? What an amazing guy. So yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, before we talk about, about uh, Shirley Baker, tell us just a little bit about your background, how you got into the film industry. I, well, again, it was all from an interest from a very early age. So I was always fascinated by the whole thing. I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to be a filmmaker? But growing up in Dublin, in, in I was born in 66. So, um, you know, growing up in the 70s here, everything was quite basic. <laughs> you know, it was like in bath, you know, in the, in the, the living room where we'd have our, our baths in front of the open fire and stuff like that. And it was like we had one we had one TV uh, channel. So we luckily we were within an area where we could receive the signals from the UK. So we would watch BBC One and we watch ITV. And so we became really into the BBC. And the BBC would show on a Saturday night, they'd show double bills of classic movies. They'd show a black and white one and they'd show a color one, you know, mm. back to back, maybe 8 p.m. until midnight or whatever. So I sort of really, that that became the thing, like, you know, we're going to watch these. And I became really fascinated with the whole idea. But it, but you didn't really think, growing up, you know, in a working class household, you know, in Dublin in the 70s, you didn't really think you'd be able to do that. It wasn't really a world that you get involved in. You were an audience member and you didn't expect to go beyond that. But then obviously as you get older and you start talking to people, you go, oh, you work in the film, how did you get into that? Oh, well, I went here and I just volunteered and then I met this person and they recommended me for that. And I realized that you just had to network in order to do it. But funnily enough, I ended up working in animation in 1989. I worked for Murakami Wolf when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was <laughs> a really big thing. Yeah. And we, so we did a lot of the work uh, there. But then I found out that uh, Steven Spielberg was holding um, uh, interviews for American Tale 2 at his Amblimation studio in London, which was in a place called Acton, in front of Acton Park, a lovely part of London. Um, And I went along and I ended up getting the job and I ended up working for Spielberg on that. And then I moved straight from there to Richard Williams, who he's the guy who did uh, Roger Rabbit. So after Roger Rabbit, we ended up doing a film called The Thief and the Cobbler. And we had amazing voices on it. We had Vincent Price, we had Kenneth Williams, Sean Connery, made Jimmy Stewart as well, actually working on the Spielberg one. It was his last film. And oh. uh, so that was the world I was involved in. Was yeah. animation. But then when I went back to Ireland, that kind of fizzled out and it became computer animation, which I didn't know anything about. I, I was literally the guy painting the actual cells or the plastic sheets that would wow. be painting all the characters, right? So I thought, I'm not retraining again. i got to do something else. So I ended up studying business and ended up becoming an accounts manager for a telecommunications company. And you're probably thinking, what a million miles away that is. And it was a million miles away. But my brother, Jonathan, uh, was working there too. And we were talking about movies. And we thought, you know what? The technology has advanced now to the point where we don't need to be in, in a film studio. We don't need to be working for a TV company. We can literally pick up a camera now and go out and make a film uh, with the potential of it being distributed. 
So I happen to be a huge fan of a British photographer, uh, an aristocrat called Sir Simon Marsden um, out of Lincolnshire. And I wrote to his agent this, you know, this letter saying what an amazing guy I thought he was. I thought his photographs were incredible. If you don't know him, look him up. His work is really beautiful. It's infrared photography and it's all, it's all infrared photography at, you know, like, you know, supposed haunted locations, ruined abbeys and, you know, really beautiful, um, you know, old crumbling buildings and that. As he always said, he said, haunted houses don't frighten them walking down Oxford Street on a Saturday afternoon. That's what terrified him. And I totally agreed with him. <laughs> so we ended up, after I wrote the letter, he ended up ringing me and we ended up becoming friends. And I said, look, what are you doing next? And he said, funnily enough, I'm doing a book on Ireland. And, you know, let's meet up. But it turned out that there was a delay. So he invited me to stay at his house in Lincolnshire. And we realized we were we had so many interests in common. So I said over dinner, well, look, I'm getting into filmmaking now. What if I film your trip? And he gave me this, mm. like, this really strange look and then changed the subject. And his wife, Lady Caroline Marsden, said to me, the reason why he gave you that look is the amount of people that have mentioned doing a film and nothing ever happens. And I said, well, look, if you talk to him for me, I guarantee it'll happen because I'm determined to get a film company going and make a film. And I did. I, I went with him. I started filming him. He actually said to me, look, film if you want, but just stay out of my way when I'm photographing. You know, he's a big six foot three inch kind of imposing mm -hmm. guy with a really deep voice, you know. And I said, okay, fair enough, Simon. I'll stay out of the way. And But then he wanted to have a look at what I was doing. And so he realized, he said, you've got an eye for this. I'm going to give you more time. He said, I will do my photography and then I will reenact it for you and you can film it. So well, to cut a very long story short, it ended up being uh, picked up by um, a Hollywood um, agent and he ended up distributing it to 150 countries. So I kind of went, well, there you go. From watching movies as a kid to thinking you could never get involved in that world to making a film on a camera that I could almost fit inside my coat pocket is now being distributed around the world and being seen in 150 countries. And uh, so that, that's literally how it began by picking up a camera and going, I'm going to make a film and making one. I know I'm lucky in the fact that it was, it was successful and it was picked up by Discovery and all of that. So that's not always going to happen. But I think anyone is really passionate about something. If you push long and hard enough, you're going to get through. I mean, George Bernard Shaw said that the real tragedy of failure is that people give up before they're successful. And I think I agree with that. I mean, even mm -hmm. how we were Harrison Ford before we went on live and uh, started recording. And even he said, they asked him, why do you think you're successful? And he said, I'm the last guy to get off the bus. He thoroughly believed that, you know, it was that determination, you know, that if he didn't get a role, he would be a carpenter. And he happened to be working for George Lucas. And George goes, oh, we've got a role going that we haven't filled. A guy called Han Solo. Do you want to do that? <laughs> oh, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. Sorry. You know, to cut off my bad language. The Irish are known for our expletives. I'll have to be careful. Well, don't worry about it. <laughs> I like the way you guys say fook. Oh, fook, well, You yeah. probably don't. <laughs> I don't know. I went to a private school, so they told me. <laughs> things properly <laughs> yeah say what you want yeah okay just don't get political oh i definitely won't get political yeah.
Unless you agree with me. No, I'm kidding. We don't, we don't do that stuff. I'll say one thing political, right? That you, it's just a joke. I said, how do you know a politician is lying? His mouth is moving? Exactly. <laughs> that applies to everybody. That's true. Yes. I'd like to take a quick break to thank the Street Photography Magazine subscribers for your support. We couldn't do this without you. You may have noticed that we don't sell advertising or sponsorships in the podcast or inside Street Photography Magazine itself. And that's because we want to be completely objective about the work we publish and the services and gear that we cover. Our only constituent is you, our listeners and readers. So if you like what we're doing, you can support the show by subscribing to Street Photography Magazine. It's only $5 per month, and you can do it by visiting streetphotographymagazine.com slash subscribe. And now back to the show. So let's talk about Shirley Baker. Um, like I said, I wasn't familiar with her work, but then I saw your film and I said, wow, she did some very powerful work. And, um, and I have to say, I, I found the film disturbing just because of the way the citizens of Manchester or whatever were treated by the country during some pretty tough times. Absolutely. It is just, and I'm glad you used that word. And I think I'll put it on the poster, to be honest, because oh. that's, yeah, because that's something that people wouldn't normally consider about a film like this. I think you're making a film about an artist, but the fact is that she was an observer of the life that was going on around her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she had a good family, as you saw from the film. She was married to a doctor. Um, she always had a passion for photography, and she had an eye for it, clearly, by the incredible photographs that she managed to take and the trust that she got from the people. I know a lot of the subjects, when they're looking at the camera, they don't look very friendly. You know, they don't look as though... You know, I mean, you see a punk girl as well sticking her finger up in a rage at her, you know, in the yeah. later photographs. But that's part of the whole punk ideology anyway. Yeah. Here's some, a woman, you know, a pretty middle-aged woman with her coiffed hair, you know, taking a picture of me with a nice camera and her nice raincoat. And they're like, who the hell is this? But the thing was that, yes, it was like it was so socio-politically, it was a terrible time for people. Um in deprived areas. I mean, you, you could see even the houses that were built during the Victorian era and how many people got sick from the bad sanitation. And I mean, even like even up in Yorkshire, where it was rural, seemingly the, all the Bronte sisters, they died because rotten flesh was getting into the drinking water from the, from the cemetery near their house. And they all died of what they call consumption in those days. Mm -hmm. And they were all dead in their 20s and 30s from something that was completely unavoidable. So you had a mixture of industrial revolution and a lot of pollution and a lot of people working in industrial parts of, uh, you know, the, the urban landscape. And then, you know, they thought, okay, as time went on, they thought, well, this isn't a sanit you know, sanitary way for people to live. But what they'd forgotten about was that these amazing communities had built up and these really tight-knit and literally tight-knit communities. And um, these people did not want to be moved into hideous high-rise buildings. And we all know how horrendous they became and still are in many places. In Dublin, 
they had towers like that at a place called Ballymun, and they were they were basically I was going to say unceremoniously, but more ceremoniously raised to the ground because they were so hideous. And uh, and now they built some really nice areas for people to live out in that area. In fact, one of the towers that they felled, I filmed. I'll, I'll send you the footage. Actually, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. They see this incredible tower coming down with this controlled explosion, which even though it was gigantic. And of course, um, they still haven't done this in the UK. Maybe in certain areas they have done this, but even with something so big that it came down perfectly and caused no damage to the surrounding area. I mean, the engine, the almost like the the unengineering of the building in a way, the felling of it was as impressive. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so yeah, so she decided that she wanted to go out into the streets and she wanted to get a record of the people that were living in those communities because she thought they were fascinating people. Uh, the fact that the children look so happy, you know, these children, they were caked and caked in mud. And a lot of the time they were barefoot and things that give me a nightmare being the father of a, you know, a girl, little girl is yet to be six. The fact that these children would be roaming the streets on their own barefoot, you know, playing with their dolls and yeah. they could streets away. And, and it was only by, you know, the, the grace of God that they managed to come home again. I mean, people wouldn't dream of that now, but these communities, their doors were always open. You know, if if one of your children was missing, you pretty much knew they were at number 14 having dinner with that family, you know, and then. They go. And so that's that was the nature of it. And in a way, it was also it was like the. Um, like in London. And a lot of these places, I know London's, you know, it's not the north of England, it's down south, but um, they had the same kind of attitude where they had a kind of a World War II mentality of let's all pitch in and let's all get our community going. And and it was kind of like that um, victory in Europe, even spirit, where people were like, yes, you know, we're going to make this happen. Things are, things are going to get better. We're going to rebuild. Because, of course, all the major cities were bombed out during World War II. Um, so, yeah, she just wanted to photograph it. She wanted to have a record of it. But if you think about it, during that time, you don't really think about the decades coming where people will look back on those pictures almost with a nostalgic feel, even mm-hmm. though they are disturbing. There are some disturbing images, I think, particularly of children. Um, there, there is, you can't help but have a nostalgic glow on them, looking back to the, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in, in England. There's a bit, and when they are black and white, of course, and there is a certain romanticism about the images, um, a kind of a long forgotten world. But yeah, first and foremost, I think a photographer and then um, a socio-political uh, chronicle, really. Yeah, you make a good point about the romanticism for the for the past. The um, you sort of pop that bubble with the film. Yeah, because um, when you go, you look at her website. You, that's what it looks like, yeah. you know. Nice pictures of days gone by. Yeah, but the photographs you chose for the film show how tough it really was there. That's exactly it. I mean, but again, you know, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to make the film. We thought anyone can look at the website and they can get lost in the imagery. But we thought. Here's a woman whose life and work should really be celebrated in a tangible way that everybody kind of understands. Everyone likes to sit down and, again, watch the moving image. 
So essentially, we've made a moving image film about the still image, which I, I always think is great because they are they're so intertwined anyway, as we said earlier, about 24 frames per second. You know, it's essentially you're looking at a second of film, but it's 24 still images, you know. Um, so I, I feel there's a huge connection there. But it's true that the at least in film form, telling her story, which, which I thought was beautifully written by John West, who's my creative partner. And again, a guy who I rarely ever see. He's out in Suffolk in East Anglia, living in a 17th century haunted flat, which I've stayed in and have experienced his paranormal activity, I might add. Um, he, uh, you know, he just, he knew nothing about Shirley Baker. And I said, John, such a great writer, such a great journalist. I said, research this woman, you're writing the film, and then I'm going to direct it. And I just went, okay. And then a couple of weeks later, he had written it and had it approved by the Shirley Baker estate. And off we went in making the film. But he was the same. He was like, oh my God, like, he had uncovered stuff that even Shirley's daughter didn't know about and had never come across because he's a very kind of investigative reporter kind of guy. He writes for Psychic News, um, writes a lot of stuff about, you know, stories about crime, but usually with a paranormal aspect, like maybe somebody had seen the ghost of somebody who lived in a house and then he looks into it and discovered there was a murder there, that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so he dug deep into it and he was saying to me, look, I really believe and I said, before you say it, John, I know what you're going to say. I said that this film is really about the period. And she chronicled that period of time. So you're, I mean, I love the fact that you said disturbing because I, I, I completely agree with you. But again, it's not something people would readily think about a, a film about a, a female photographer working on the streets of Manchester and Salford. Um, so, yeah. How did you come up with the idea to make a film about Shirley Baker? I mean, do you, do you have a whole list of things? Hey, I can make one about this or about that. Or were you a big fan of her work? And you said, I, uh, we have to make a film about her. Well, I'll tell you what, right? Be, because I had made a follow-up film, Simon Morrison sadly died in 2012. John Hurth had come on board that film, by the way, about uh, called The Twilight Hour, the original film I did with Simon Marston, and he had narrated um, opening and closing pieces by the brilliant American writer Edgar Allan Poe. And um, then Simon died in 2012 on John Hurth's birthday, which I thought was crazy, you know? Um, a misdiagnosis, basically. Uh, he had a leaking heart valve, and they told him he had asthma. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he wrote to me the day before he passed away, which was quite emotional because, again, he was a very stoic kind of guy. And he was basically emailing me to say goodbye. And I it wow. blew my mind because it was like, all my love to you and the family and all that. And But it was so, you know, you wouldn't believe the way he had written in such a stoic fashion. And the next day he was gone. So I spoke to his wife, uh, believing this is connected to what we're talking about, even if I sound as I'm tangentializing. Um, I spoke to his wife and said, would you like me to make a film um, about his life and his work? And she said, absolutely. So I made that film, which is called Simon Morris and the Life in Pictures. And it ended up getting it. It was sponsored by Nikon, actually. And it ended up having its premiere at the British Film Institute. And one of my absolute heroines, Hayley Mills, came to see it. And I got a hug and a kiss from Hayley Mills. So that kind of made my day. That set me up for a great day. Wow. And, 
Yeah, the fabulous Ellie Miller. Of course, Disney made, you know, Walt Disney took her under his wing and made her very famous. But um, so um, when that happened and the, we had a great success with that, I was thinking what came out was the Vivian Meyer film. And I was utterly fascinated by Vivian Meyer and the mm -hmm. fact that she never wanted to be famous and she had taken all these pictures for her own pleasure and had such an incredible eye and those really beautiful comedic shots she had taken of, you know, maybe the bottom half of somebody walking and then reflect in the window going in the other direction. Like, what, what an eye she had. And her wonderful, um, almost comedic uh, um, self-portraits. So I you know, I literally went looking. I said, I want to find a fabulous female photographer to make a film about her. And I thought, well, where do I want to look? I said, well, I want to look in England and I want to look in the north of England because I'm a huge fan of the north of England. I go hiking in the Pennines and, you know, the Yorkshire Way and, and places like that and the Yorkshire Moors, which a lot of people find bleak, but I find so beautiful that I've actually been moved to tears just walking through them without even realizing tears down, you know, wetting my cheeks, just walking across these vast, you know, northern landscapes. So I thought, I'm going to find one, and she's got to be northern. And as soon as I went looking for a northern, um, northern photographer, Shirley Baker was everywhere, and I was blown away by her work. I, and I started looking into everything, and, and I spent about a year actually really looking into her work before I decided, well, one, that I had time that I could actually devote time to this. And then I contacted her daughter, Nan Levy, who runs the Shirley Baker estate uh, and is her biggest you know, fan, being her daughter, of course, and being proud of such a talented mother. And we ended up talking, and we talked over a period of months, I think it was, um, over what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And she liked my pitch, and she liked my passion for her mother's work and decided that she would let me go ahead and see what I could pull together. And that's when I approached John and said, you're writing this, mate. And he did. <laughs> and Anne did an amazing job. I mean, she was, when she read it, she was moved to tears because the things that she hadn't even known, and she couldn't believe that John was able to pull out of the ether, you know, you know, from where. I, I even wonder about that. But so, and then when she saw the, the, the final cut of the film, she was also moved to tears because here is a, you know, what we would like to think a beautifully made film about a woman who deserves to have a beautifully made film about her life and work, who is a great talent and the world needs to know about what she did and how she did it. Because you've seen the photographs and that's not just somebody taking photographs. That's somebody who has managed to get right into the community and have people trust her that she could get up that close you know, to photograph the, and the children and said, look so joyful. Some of them don't, of course, we don't know. And that is also mentioned. It's probably what you're talking about. It's one of the disturbing aspects. You don't know what happened to those children, what lives they went on to have, because there wasn't that much to look forward to for those children, just either being unemployed or working in dead end jobs and factories or, you know, delivering coal, backbreaking work. Um, so, you know, there's great poignancy, I think, and I, and I think we're hardwired to look at little people, you know, to our, you know, the children of the world, mm -hmm. as they always say, it takes a village to raise a child. So if you have any kind of empathy, you're going to look at children with, you know, and you want to protect them, whether they're yours or not, you want to protect them. 
So to look at these little children caked in mud and their hair not washed and just filthy, and you just like, you want to reach out and hug them and, and hope that they had a good life. Um, but, but we, you know, we don't know. None of us know what happened to those children, except, funnily enough, for one. A woman came forward called Alison O'Brien, a lovely woman. And there's a photograph early on in the film, of a black and white photograph of children playing in the street. And there's a little girl in the foreground. And when she saw the trailer for the film, she contacted me and said, I'm that little girl. I'm that little girl. And uh, so we become friends. And she comments on all the posts and she shares everything about the film. And all of her friends are like, oh, you're going to be in this film about Shirley Baker. And so it was lovely to at least have a representative of those, of all those beautiful little children, you know, to come forward and go, I was one of those. And here I am in my 60s now. And I've had a good life and everything is fine. We know it can't have been that way for all of them, but it's nice to have one even come forward to represent. Did she say, if, or, or did she know who Shirley Baker was at the time, or was she just some random woman with a oh, camera? Oh, she, of course, she became, yeah. she became very familiar um, um, with her work later on and would see her around the streets. And to her, she was just this nice lady. You know, who who would come up and smile and take photographs and ask, you know, ask the parents, do you mind if I just take some pictures? And she said she rarely really got any kind of dissent. I mean, obviously, it would be the odd person who shouted or, you know, or maybe turn away or, or give her a, a strong look. But as far as I know, she didn't really encounter any kind of real aggression, um, you know, which is great because, I mean, I think nowadays, if you stuck a camera in somebody's face, you know, the odds are you might get knocked out. Yeah. It's Much different work. today. Yeah. Uh, especially in a tough area like that. Mm. The, you, you talk about the children and I, I remember hearing a comment. Um, I think it was some of Shirley's words where she photographed women and children and men who have nothing to do. Something like that. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. It was so, actually. It was. I think it was women, children. It was maybe it was. La was a laughing man. I'm even forgetting the quotes as well. Yeah. But where? Well, it's true. That, I mean, because there were. I mean, there were a lot of even when the when the houses were being torn down and they were you know moving them out to the kind of satellite towns and places they thought that they would prefer, and of course. You know, they, they could have actually been signaled by the fact that even as the houses were being torn down, there were women like polishing the doorstep and, yeah. and re washing them and keeping everything immaculate. That was their home. Like how they'd lived there all their lives in many cases. Um, and, you know, but you would see then homeless men, you know, sit, you know, you know, sleeping in the in the buildings that have been vacated and just trying to find a bit of, you know, cover for the night. Um, but of course, there, yeah, there was a huge amount of unemployment in the north of England. Um, like, for example, I went to Yorkshire for the very first time in 1999. I just went there for a couple of weeks on my own to do some hiking in the moors. And I remember in, in the village of Howard, which is the famous village associated with, with the Bronte family, um, there was an 18th century house on Main Street for only 50,000. And it was like a three or four bedroom house. And that's how bad the economy was in the north of England, that 
you would buy, I mean, you wouldn't buy a garden shed in Dublin for 50,000. You know, it's like, yeah. it was unbelievable that this historic building was going for sale for 50,000 pounds. I mean, I thought it was reading it wrong and that somebody had scribbled out a zero, but it wasn't. It was 50,000 pounds. So the north of England, um, I think more than a lot of places in Britain has kind of, you know, been under straitened times because of, you know, various of its uh, industrial attributes being, you know, taken away from them or even, or even, even the natural resources that they were mining were, were kind of diminishing over time as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of economic issues and the mines being closed down, you know, in the, in the 70s and the 80s, you know, under Thatcher, etc. Which is funny, actually, because I'm just about to start editing a film about the miners' strikes in the 1980s uh, down in the south of England. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know they had mines in the south of England. So, so there is an education. I've been, you know, I've been, you know, hard to edit this feature film about something that I'd always been fascinated about, but never knew that there were mines in the south of England. I always thought it was Wales in the north. So, I mean, you learn something new every day. I didn't know that either. What did, what kind of mines? Coal mines? Coal mines, yeah. Oh. Coal mines. Oh. You know, I went just... down actually in Wales. There's an amazing one called Blaenaffen in Wales, and it's now a museum. And I remember um, it was quite funny, actually, because I'm, 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 a, I'm a big guy and 6'2", 16 stone, but I lift weights and that, so... You know, I, I have a big frame and, and miners, I mean, Welshmen are big men anyway, you know. And, uh, but I remember going in, I, and I never forgot this, when you go in uh, for the tour, they have to put a gas mask around you and, and he couldn't get around my chest and he was kind of laughing. Look at the size of this boy, oh, you know, I can't his <laughs> chest. And they were all having a great laugh about it. But uh, so they eventually got it on. But when you go into the lift, um, it plummets down hundreds of feet but what you could hear as you were plummeting down was a Welsh a miner singing. And, you know, they're known for their incredible voices, the Welsh, like Welsh choirs and stuff. And there's an amazing Welsh baritone called Brinterfell. And if you've never heard him, he's just glorious voice, Brinterfell. And he's a huge guy, 6'3", and like 18 stone, and just this beautiful bellowing voice. Um but and then when you go down and one of the one of the things they do, I mean, I'm so glad I had the experience because editing that film is going to be incredible. And that having having felt it, one, it's really cold down there, you know, hundreds of feet below the earth. But they got everyone to turn their lamps off. And you know the way normally when the lights are out, yes, you see something, but you could see not absolutely in yep. darkness. And I remember my girlfriend at the time, Anne, she decided to walk off for a minute and, and look down a, a corridor. And the guy shouts after her, Missy, where are you going? And she said, I'm just looking here. Never leave the group. He said, have you walked 100 feet down that tunnel? There's, um, there's, there's a wall of gas hanging in the air. He said, you could be dead in seconds. He said, you never leave the group. So that whole, fact, you know, that whole idea that in the north of England, a lot of the, a lot of the work that the people, the men would have been doing, and the boys from the age of 13 or 14 up, would have been going down the mines. So when I approached the film as well, I had this very clear uh, memory 
of what it's like being down in the bowels of the earth like that in the mines, the, the coldness and the darkness and the lack of sound and the stillness. So even that really kind of inspired me in, in uh, even though it looks like I've gone off on a tangent, you see the way I bring it back? You like that? So <laughs> hey, You're a storyteller. Yeah. That's it. That's the thing. I always worry. I'm always like my, my wife would say, you know, make that story just a bit shorter, you know, and I go, well, I'm getting to a point. I'm just going around the houses to get it there. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it's true. Like I found that inspiring and it really helped with the, with the putting together of the film and the whole mood and feel of it by having had that experience. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was, uh, I had an opportunity to go on a salt mine. Oh, wow. It was under Lake Erie. Oh, wow. And it was a quarter mile deep. It was much deeper than a coal mine. Jeez. Uh, and the thing with the darkness still is, uh, it's hunting is because we did the same thing. We went down, they actually drive trucks around down there, but it's very dry. Yeah. And everybody who worked there were coal miners from Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Southern Ohio. And they loved it because it was always 72 degrees wow. it was dry and, and, and salt is real easy to work with compared to coal. Right. Coal mines are shallow, but, uh, it was really something. What an experience to, to do that. But anyway, we're getting off track. You know, um, you in the film, there are so many very powerful images of Shirley Baker's. And so I went to the website. I said, oh, good. I want to, I want to look at these things. Yeah. But uh, a lot of those photos aren't in there. Well, you know, well, that's an interesting one, okay? Well, I said to Nan, look, I want you to send me all of your favorite images, and they're the ones that I'm going to include in the film. I said, mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to you. I said, you know your mother's work better than anybody. I don't want to be just going picking stuff, and then for you to go, oh, I never really liked that image. You think we could change it? Mm. Well, I got her to send me all these images. And it was funny that when I edited the film and I sent it to her, there's always that concern. You know, like, oh, Christ, is she going to hate every image I put in or think yeah. they're in place? She literally sent me an email with maybe seven or eight notes, and that was it. You know, oh, I, I did you know you doubled up on that image? Clearly you love it, and I know you do because it's one of our favorite images as well. And I realized I had. I was so stuck on the image. And it's the image from the very beginning with the little boy uh, covered in mud, and he's standing mm -hmm. on, the, on the doorstep looking frightened. And I, I find that quite emotional. And that little boy actually looked really like me when I was that age. And it kind of freaked me out. I thought that literally could be me. So we replaced stuff like that. Or maybe, you know, it was something like talking about the color of, of a child's hair and stuff. And I hadn't found the image. So it was really stuff that she knew she had in the archive. So really all of that is down to Nan. She chose all these fabulous images that we can include in the film. But you're right. I mean, if you Google them, they're re like you, you can't find them. Which, which in a way, of course, I love because I don't want. <laughs> I don't want. Yeah, I mean, I want. I want that uh, kind of exclusivity in the film where people go, "Oh my God, there's all these photographs we've never seen of Shirley's before." So you can, you know, you can thank Nan for that. I mean, it was literally her going into the archive and going, "These are the ones I love. These are ones I think will really work." And then me working with those. I, I assume. Many of those images have been are in in her books or in they've been in some of the exhibits. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And of course, 
a lot of the exhibits are specific, like they might have one about the dog shows or, you know, they have one about France, you know, and mm-hmm. go on holidays in France and, you know, and, the, you know, the difference between, I think one of the things, again, was the body beautiful, you know, French women with their amazing figures and everything, you know, on the beach is naked in France. Yeah. And, in, and then in England, they're all huddled together on the beach. <laughs> They're wearing like handkerchiefs on their head and they're eating their chips. And <laughs> yes. I thought that was quite a difference. Yeah, isn't it quite a difference? I mean, you'll, you know, there's a specific image, I think, I'm sure you're thinking of with the, the topless women lying on the ground and you're kind of like, yeah. Kind of I saw that one. Yeah, I did. I, yes. <laughs> um, they do look beautiful. But, uh, yeah, and that was the thing, you know, she, um, she loved, she loved, trying to get a, a kind of an overall view of wherever she was in her photographs. Like what, what, what are these photographs going to represent something specific? So again, that is the body beautiful. And then almost the comedic um, contrast between that and England, you know, not that of course there were thousands and millions of beautiful bodies in England as well, but they, I don't know, they were hiding away <laughs> visiting the beach. <laughs> The uh, oh darn! I'm so busy listening to you, I forgot my question. <laughs> well, actually, John West, who wrote again, um, very very attractive woman, uh, and and she and her dad, his dad, uh, looked like a gangster, like a London gangster. He looks like he could have worked for the Craze or something, you know. And they had, they, but they had, they were such a great looking couple, you know, the two of them, her with her, you know beautiful coiffured look and him in the with the, you know the wide lapel suits and everything and all that just looking like a guy Terry he ended up uh, he was in the police for a while as well he used to train stuntmen martial arts and you name it and the guy knew how to choke somebody out you know in seconds without even realizing it had happened to him right? a kind of a dangerous character but and John if you meet him it's like the sweetest nicest guy you could meet he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't suffer fools, I'll tell you that much. But on the mm. surface, John is just a real gentleman, you know. I think he's kind of, I think he's kind of like the perfect blend of his mother and father, judging from everything I know about John and about his parents. But yeah, so well that's maybe that helps you get back on track. But yes, his mother was a beauty queen at those end of period kind of events. I think Miss Southeast England she won actually, as far as I know. Yeah. And she was a tiller girl, which was a famous um thing to be in those days back in the, the 50s and the 60s does that help yeah that helps <laughs> that helps a lot That's... so um i wonder if you could tell us where can people where are people going to be able to see this film well it's going to be everywhere um i have an agent in los angeles um, a great guy called um, doug Zwick, and uh he tends to place a lot of my work, but when he saw the film, he immediately said, oh my God, I, I can place this, no problem. Um, so it's going to be available on DVD. It's going to be available video on demand, digital download. It's going to be pretty much everywhere. But at the moment, because it's so early days, we're kind of getting a feel for the, you know, the temperature out there with regard to the film and where it's going to be premiered. So we, we want to premiere somewhere really appropriate. So mm-hmm. we're talking you know, the likes of the Tate and Victoria and Albert and the Larry in the north of England. And we're going to have 
an overall world premiere, but then also local premieres like North of England premiere, etc. Because needless to say, there needs to be a special screening for a woman who spent most of her, you know, creative experience in the North of England in those amazing places. Um, so we're looking at places like the Lowry. Um, and of course, you mentioned having met Lowry, who happens to be my favorite artist. Um, I loved, loved his work. I love his work, I should say. So, um, yeah, we'd be looking at a London world premiere and then a North of England premiere. And uh, then it'll go out to the world in general. So it'll be avail available all over. What, uh, what kind of timing are you talking about? Well, I, I, I don't like sitting on things. So we're yeah. already works of that. Like we're already in talks with the Tate um, and some other places for different types of screenings. I know the Royal Photographic Society um, are definitely going to want to show it. They've already done retrospectives of Shirley and her work. And, and Dr. Michael Pritchard, who um, kind of gave us some, some great support. I'm actually looking at the moment of uh, a letter that he wrote in support of the film, first trying to get it made. So they're going to want to do a screening of it, which, which will be fantastic because, I mean, they are the Royal Photographic Society. So that's, um, again, yeah. you know, even if we had our world premiere there, it's a, it's a great place, you know, to have your film premiered to better photographer and their work. So we're, we're literally on that now. Um, and certainly, you know, when I know when it's available, I'll, I'll let you know and give you the update. So you'll know yeah, exactly. Please do. But it's going to be like, it's not going to be geo blocked. You know, it's going to be literally available across the world. So if people want to, you know, do a digital download, you know, from South Africa to you know, South Boston, they'll be able to do it, you know? Wonderful. So if I may ask, in the, in the film, it, uh, you say that uh, she passed away suddenly. Yeah. Well, can you tell, tell us what happened? You know, I never asked. Oh, I never okay. asked. Right. Yeah. All, all she said was, yeah, that my mom passed away. I mean, I, I just figure if people want to go into details about sure. it, fine. But if they don't, I'm never going to ask. So I'm as, I'm as in the dark as you are, I'm afraid. Yeah, just curious. So just she curious. lived in her 80s. You know, she was in her 80s. Um, so oh. she lived a good life and, and you know, got to enjoy um, all of those things that she loved without the constraints, I think, of of worrying about whether she was going to be accepted or not. She decided just to be independent when it came to her work and just go and do it. I'm always saying that to people. I get a lot of people. I used to teach um, acting for camera at the Irish Film Academy, and people would say, oh, but how do I do this and how do I do this? And I go, just do it. I said, if you want to, if you want to be seen, then create write your own script and create your own short film and get it out there if you want to be seen as an actor write a one man or one woman play and put it on somewhere and be seen you know i i always think a lot of people feel that they they have to be in the right place at the right time or they have to be discovered discover yourself you know and get the work out now more than ever the platforms are available for all of the work you're doing to be seen Spielberg said once, um, they asked him, who do you make films for? And he said, well, first of all, I'm the audience. He said, I couldn't make a movie that I didn't feel I was going to enjoy watching myself. And he said, if I like the movie I made, I figure there's probably an audience for it. And it's right that you're, you're making films 
and creating work for the people that are going to like it, not for the people that aren't going to like it. And even on another note, I directed a film called uh, The Ghost of Winifred Meeks. And it's, uh, you know, it's available everywhere. It's picked up by Pinewood Studios, High Flyer Films, and put out there. And it's had great reviews. But funnily, um, it's been loved and hated for exactly the same reason. And I take pride in this. And the reason, the reason it's hated is because people say, oh, it's like one of those BBC ghost stories for Christmas. And so you know what I'm going to say. The reason it's loved is because people say it's like one of those BBC ghost stories for Christmas. <laughs> so there's, there's the point. You're making it for the people that are going to like it, not for the people who aren't going to like it. There's always an audience. I think if you have an ability to tell a story either in the still image or in the moving image, or with music, or with painting, there's going to be people that love it, and there's going to be people that hate it. Actually, another, I'm sorry about the name dropping, but Scorsese said to me once, I met him once, and he said, he said, with your movies, try to have people love them or hate them. Just never have them go, nah. He said, <laughs> because they do that, you've made no impression. He said, it's just as valid for people to passionately hate your work as it is for them to passionately love it. So uh, I kind of live, I live by those uh, philosophies. <laughs> I like that. I love your line, write your own script. Yeah, write your own script. It's so I'm going to use that. Yeah, you can have it. That'll be, that'll be your subtitle for the show. For this show. Great. Nice. No, you know, but we hear from a lot of people who want to become known for their photography. And yeah. you know, how do I get people to notice me? whatever, but you have to be yourself, right? And, and promote yourself. You can't wait for them to come, especially nowadays. Well, that's it. I mean, but, but the people who are, are the most successful are the people who are very pushy and passionate about the, about the work. Mm -hmm. that yes. For example, I, I'm reading a book about uh, Barbara, I think it's Sharon or Chapon. I can't remember, but basically, she, um, you know, she loved music, so she wanted to get involved in writing music. So she would literally just go up to people who were music uh, critics and she would say, I want to do what you do. You know, if I wrote something, could I send it to you? And that's exactly how she got started because the guy, luckily, the guy that she met who was working for Chicago sometimes and was a critic there, he thought, you're a good writer, so I'm going to give it to the editor. And she ended up getting hired to do it. And then she wrote, wrote for Rolling Stone and then became a publicist, but it was all out of her passion for music. She went, yeah. this is what I wanted, but she realized from a very early age that she had to literally push through people and get in the door. Even if she was annoying people, she knew that her personality would carry her through and that people would go, yeah, she's pushy, she's annoying at first, but when you get to know her, she's a cool girl, you know, and, you know, let's have her around. And that's how she got a career. But you can't, John even always tells me that. He was talking to somebody who said, you know, I was a bit pissed off at the fact you're always doing things. Like, you know, you're a DJ and now you're writing for Psychic News. And like, why can't I do that? And John's response was, I didn't wait for people to ask me. He said, I volunteered at a radio station. And they said, oh, you're, you're pretty good. Let's give you this show. And then you got a three-hour classic show and then got asked to do something else. I got headhunted for this. And, then got employed to be, you know, to, to be on TV as a presenter. And everything, every single thing he fought for. So I, another thing I believe is that 
you you don't you don't deserve stuff. You don't deserve things to happen for you. You have to make them happen, and then you deserve it. So that whole idea of like ninety nine percent or one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration. I know I'm full of sayings tonight. I don't know where they're coming from. I have a cold, so I think I'm I'm hallucinating. Something's working. I'm a conduit tonight, you know, for all these things. But, um, you know, I, I really believe you have to work hard. Hey, another one, another one that's coming to me is they say, hey, isn't it funny that the harder I work, the luckier I get? Yeah. You know, it's like, just work. Work at the stuff you love and good things will come from that. I mean, I've made movies, right, where I've kind of gone, oh, you know, not exactly the best work anyone could ever do. But I've always put passion into it, even though as I was doing it, I realized there were a lot of flaws. So I've always ended up with a film that there were things about it I've liked. But every film I made opened another door to me getting another opportunity and having the work become better and stronger with more interesting people all the time. To the point of now, like I was growing up, when I grew up, I was a huge fan of Susan George, uh, you know, from Straw Dogs. And uh, only a few weeks ago, this is the point I've got to. I'm working out in, in my gym in the attic and that, and it's nine 9.30 at night. And I'm like, who the hell is ringing me at 9.30 at night? And I see Susan George's name. And I pick up the phone. And I said, Susie, but she insists I call her Susan. And I said, uh, I never imagined that one day I'd be working out in the attic and I'd pick up the phone and it's Susan George ringing me. And she said, you're part of the family now, baby, part of the family. <laughs> and that's it. But the only reason I'm part of the family is because I kept pushing and getting the doors open and asking to meet this person and that person and, mm. and the other person. Like when I did that film with uh, with Simon Marsden, um, I was invited uh, to show it at a big screening, a Nikon screening um, uh, at the Nikon Owners Club. And who was sitting at the table with me but uh, Tom Cruise's PA. And she rang Tom Cruise and said, you'd really like this guy. And um, you should get him along to one of the premieres. And then I get a call from, it was either Paramount or somebody like that. And they go, hi, Jason, I'm ringing on behalf of Tom Cruise. How do you know Tom? And I said, I don't know Tom. And he said, well, he knows you. And he's sending you a personal invite to his next premiere in London. But after that, I got invited to all of them. I would just receive an invite to all of the red carpet premieres in Leicester Square in London. But again, it was purely because I worked hard on something I was passionate about. It was seen by the right people. And then the opportunities came from that good intention of being passionate and pure in the work you do. Another very long-winded way of saying work hard. (laughs) Well, so where can people learn more about you? Well, they can look at my Wikipedia. Actually, it's funny. For a long time, I had to update Wikipedia. And I know, I think, um, a friend of mine in L.A., in Hollywood, actually, top voice uh, artist. In fact, she did all the voice for all the ghosts in the sixth sense. Um, Mm. Amazing artist. But um, she said that uh, in America, people are really familiar with looking up names on Wikipedia. It tends to be more IMDb. But if you look at people looked at Jason Figgis' Wikipedia, pretty much it's up to date there. You know, all the work I've been doing over the years and everything is up to date. Because I, John always says to me, hey, I've looked at your wiki. You didn't update this. This. Well, do you want me to do it for you? And I go, oh, fine. If you want to do it, you like writing, do it. So that is up to date. Jason figures Wikipedia. Cool. Of course, then there's IMDb. 
Well, there is, but IMDb is a funny one because yeah. sometimes I look at it and I go, oh, that project, and, and I'm associated as a director with an anthology, but it was like a, like a really short little piece that I directed for something. So, uh, you know, and so, the, you know, it's, it says something like 40 or 50 director credits for me, yeah. which is true, but it's not really a good overview of the kind of work I do because a lot of it is just like, you know, while I releasing or something want to do an anthology and will you do a piece? And sometimes it's a scene that I've had from another film that I haven't used and I literally just grade it and send it to them and then and they use it. Interesting. So, yeah. so I, I think Wikipedia for me is Good. more relevant. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll put that, definitely put it in the article. I'm going to put your IMDB in there anyway. Sure. Because I think it's cool. You're even on the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Feel free. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, Jason, thank you very much. Uh, it was a lot of fun and very interesting. And hey, everybody who's listening, go see this movie when it comes out. <laughs> when you can find it, exactly. When you can find it. Shirley Baker, Life Through a Lens. Your thoughts about the show go a long way in helping us decide on the guests and the subjects that we include in each episode. So please take a few moments to write a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to stream your podcasts. It helps us know if we're on the right track and it helps others to find and enjoy the show. The editor of Street Photography Magazine is Ashley Refo, and our audio engineer is Russell Boyd from WeBit Studios found at webitstudios.co.uk. I'm Bob Patterson, and this is the Street Photography Magazine podcast, a service of Street Photography Magazine. Street Photography Magazine.